Hi, and welcome to the Computer Architecture Podcast, a show that brings you closer to cutting-edge work in computer architecture and the remarkable people behind it. We are your hosts. I'm Suvanay Subramanian. And I'm Lisa Shu. Today we have with us Vivian Z, who is an associate professor in the EECS department at MIT. Vivian is recognized for her leading work on energy-efficient computing systems spanning a wide range of domains, from video compression to machine learning, robotics, and digital health. She received the DARPA Young Faculty Award, Edgerton Faculty Award, faculty grants from Google, Facebook, and Qualcomm, and a Primetime Engineering Emmy as a member of the team that developed the high-efficiency high video codec standard. Today, she is here to talk to us about energy-efficient algorithm hardware co-design for compute-intensive applications, including video encoding, deep neural networks, and robotics. A quick disclaimer that all views shared on the show are the opinions of individuals and do not reflect the views of the organizations they work for. Vivian, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to talk to you. And what's getting you up in the mornings? Um, okay, so I would say, if you say literally what's getting me up in the morning, I recently got a milk frother. So I'm making these matcha lattes at home very excited about that and you know nice upbeat music from the work end i'm super excited about you know meeting up with my students and collaborators and brainstorming and working together and then learning a lot from them also since we're just kicking off the semester here at MIT learning a lot from teaching so right now this semester i'm teaching with Joel Emmer on this hardware for deep learning class i know we'll get into it but like this space moves very quickly and so often we need want to update our slides but we often try to be very conscientious about trying to identify principles in this space that we can distill down to lecture material so that the material doesn't have to change from year to year. So we just went through that exercise or we're still going through that exercise together. So that's a lot of fun. And also just learning from, you know, thinking through the different challenges that we have these days in society, looking at, you know, where can we use whatever skill set we have to address some of the challenges. So most recently looking at things like sustainable computing and trying to think about whether or not, you know, the work that we do with energy efficient systems at the small scale for these battery operated devices can have impact on these large scale challenges. Um, and yeah, just learning a lot from the people in the community like Carol Jean Wu, uh, Udi Gupta and uh, Bobby Mann who've been doing a lot of work in this space and trying to think about, you know, whether or not we can also make an impact um, from an academic side or academia side, um, given our lens and energy efficiency. So you were talking about a lot of things right there with, and I'm interested in particularly about this class that you're talking about, because as it stands, things are developing really, really, really fast in this space. And one of the things that we know is that like hardware develops really rather slowly, but the AI um, algorithms and things develop really quickly and distilling down to principles, like that does seem like the best way to sort of have a structure and going forward. How much of those principles do you feel like then carry over into things like energy efficient uh, hardware design? Just because, you know, if things are changing, like are there things that you can carry over so that the, the principles you carry in the hardware design piece also can hold for at least longer than, you know, six months or something? Yeah, so I think in general, I mean, at least my perception of our research is always trying to find these principles because I think it's important to let's say build an energy efficient uh you know chip or whatnot but like i think it's more what we learn from that 
process of you know developing either the architecture or the the chip itself um, are there key ideas that can then be used for other future designs for even other applications are there ways to kind of generalize those principles so i mean like maybe i just rattle them off now some of them are you know things like obviously we've seen a lot in particular in the deep learning side of things you know things like looking at data movement through efficient data flows and exploiting reuse um, those are some principles that um, you know, regardless of the type of DNN you might design, those are things that you might want to, you know, uh, think of in the, you know, in the context of maybe we'll talk about video coding later, but like, you know, thinking through in kind of the co-design space, one of the challenges might be things like parallelism. And so trying to, even though you can do that easily in hardware, those are some things that might be challenging on the algorithm side, particularly if you're trying to achieve a certain quality of results. So trying to I think kind of understanding the principle there, but then trying to fit it for a new application, but still distilling some key kind of idea there. I'm trying to keep it general, but like I think if we as we go to the specific applications, it becomes more concrete. No, that's a good overview. Uh, maybe we can expand on uh, one of the themes that you talked about in video encoding, for example. We talked about the trade-offs between parallelism, which of course lends itself to better hardware efficiency because you can use many of the cores available on your chip, uh, but in some of your early work on video compression, I think one of your observations was that uh, advanced algorithms that they use in video encoding are typically more challenging to parallelize because they try to you know, remove redundant or wasteful work in the effort to get like more work efficient. But in order to do that, they end up enforcing like a sequential dependency. Uh, so how do you think about the trade-offs between work efficiency, uh, which typically comes with an accompanying amount of sequential dependencies and so on, and hardware efficiency, where typically, you know, if you have parallel computations, you can ex execute them in parallel and therefore get better speed ups or better performance. Sure, yeah, and I don't know if I'll exactly answer that question, but I think let me just take a step back in terms of understanding video coding, so give some context. So the the way in which we compress videos, the like how a video is actually compressed, is you're trying to remove redundant information in the video. So, for example, if you took at look at two frames, they could be very sim similar. There's a lot of temporal redundancy, and so what you would do is, you know, you could predict some of the pixels in one frame based on pixels in the previous frame. So, for example, imagine the background; right, it doesn't really change, so you can just say, "Oh, copy these pixels over." And then, similarly, within an image or frame itself, neighboring pixels within the same um, image are also very dependent. So, if you can imagine, like, you know, a uh, a uh, white wall, right? So like all the pixels, you can predict it from the neighboring pixels, you don't have to send them. And so as a result, you can compress uh, very well with this. You just have to tell them, oh, where do you predict the pixel from? And then if you, if there's a bit of error, what is the error? And that tends to be compressed very well. That's great for compression. And really, you know, the whole goal of video compression is to find all this, you know, redundancy and then uh, do the prediction. The, of course, the main challenge is that, as you just mentioned, Suvenay, hardware design parallelism is very important for speed. Um, it's also very important actually for energy efficiency. So how I came about this in my PhD was uh, my PhD advisor, Anantha Chandrakasan, was really focused on how do you build like very low voltage systems. Low voltage means slow. So in order to, you know, make up for the, the speed, you want to parallelize things. So um, if you do parallelism, you can also go be much more energy efficient. Nonetheless, anyway, so when, when you look at video coding, it seemed very exciting, but at the same time, the challenge there was that because the uh, algorithms were getting more and more advanced, there was more and more dependencies that were being introduced in order to do or to achieve the compression. So it became very, very difficult to parallelize. 
Um, and so the key challenge there was trying to find ways to break this depend or you know decouple this dependency without sacrificing uh, compression efficiency. So you'd have to have like a deep understanding of the impact of first of all, what part of the system could benefit from parallelization, and then in that particular part, could you um, kind of break some of these dependencies or feedback loops in such a way that you still maintain your ability to compress well, but then also be able to paralyze and run quickly. Yeah, so do you see any parallels between that sort of mentality and a lot of the work that you're doing now with things like DNNs? Because, you know, there are, in many ways, there's a lot of parallelism, but then there's also dependencies that you have to take care of. And then, you know, we're seeing work now in the field about you know, how to maybe break some of these backwards loops or do some sort of predictive type stuff so that you don't have to necessarily wait all uh, wait such a long time to have everything come backwards. Oh, and one other thing is that, you know, back in the days when I was like learning about things like media compression, it was all about memory too, like in terms of a lot of the power consumption that is being used, the energy that's being used. It's like, okay, I got to move this, ship this data around. So if you can save having to re read and write to memory, then you can, that like you've basically won. And that we hear a lot of the same sorts of themes happening right now in these kind of DNN um, and, and, and ML and AI type workloads, which is we have to ship all this data around, like let's prefer not to read, write, re restore and, and, and save all this stuff all the time. And that's how you, that's like the big um, low hanging fruit in terms of, in terms of the energy consumption. And yet it's really hard to do. So how has your work in the compression type things served your work now that you're doing now um, in these DNN, DNN type workloads? Um, yeah, so I think I think there's a couple of things. So one is maybe I should mention like the the similarities and the the differences between the two uh, domains. I think so. The the similarity is certainly you're still at least looking from an input perspective. When you look at video, it's a very high dimensional or very heavy um, input workload. So there's certainly a lot of kind of uh, you know data movement in terms of data access there. Um, I think the the diff and so in deep learning you would also have the same thing if you're let's say processing um, images or video. I think there's a couple of main differences. So, so first in video compression, most of it is very standardized, so you can very much like very very hard code your hardware. So meaning that in these video uh, compression and decompression algorithms, you have you know sometimes you have filters and transforms and all the weights and the coefficients of these filters and transforms and all be hard coded. So it's very um, simple, like very, like, it's just like very efficient. And so the, the main challenge there is you're really trying to, because it tends to be that the hardware for these video codecs are very hardwired because they have to be very efficient if you want to do HD real time, which is what we're all doing these days. Um, you know, the hardware is very uh, specialized, but then also there's not very much sharing of resources of things like, um, you know, a lot of the memory sometimes is very dedicated to this. Harbor. So you still have to think about if you want to even have, you know, a couple kilobytes of memory and so on, it's just going to eat up hardware space and it's very dedicated. So you just still want to minimize, you know, the cost of that chip. Um, and so even internally, you might do some like compression within the compression accelerator. So it's kind of a little bit meta. On the deep learning side of thing, how it's very different is that you require a lot more flexibility um, and you have things like the weights and stuff that are much more part of the workload as well. It's not necessarily just the incoming data. 
So as a result, there's a lot more data that's moving around in the system. And so as Lisa, as you point out, data movement is then really key. You really need to think about how to uh, minimize this data movement in order to achieve both energy efficiency um, and high speed. And of course, the other thing is that it has to be also very flexible because you want to be able to support a wide range of deep neural nets versus, you know, in video compression, you typically have one chip dedicated to one standard and you don't need that uh, amount of uh, flexibility or one chip, one IP on one chip. Sometimes these uh, chips have multiple IPs for different standards. So when you start have to thinking about both flexibility and data movement, I think it becomes um, an interesting cha challenge. And that's why uh, for the work I've been doing with uh, Joel Emmer and then also um, our student uh, Yushin Chen, we were primarily focused on looking at efficient data flows where you can be very, uh, we can exploit a lot of data re reuse, but we also wanted to have a solution that was very flexible in the sense that, you know, regardless of, you know, the shape of your neural network, whether it be, you know, number of layers, the shape of each layer, um, we should be able to find a way to optimize that data flow on our hardware to minimize the amount of data movement. And we needed to account for all data types, not just the weight, uh, not just the inputs, but also the weights. And so I think that's kind of a little bit of the difference between uh, deep learning and the video coding side. Of course, you know, efficiency and, you know, compression. I mean, you, you can apply compression also, you know, in deep learning as well, uh, also play an important role. But I think it was it's more of a tension of you know efficiency versus flexibility and the uh, variability in terms of the problem that you're trying to solve. Right. I think balancing the flexibility while getting the performance and efficiency that you want in DNNs has been one of the challenges, especially since the space also moves very rapidly. Expanding on the compression uh, theme itself. So in video compression, as you said, you know you have different frames. There's a very well understood theory behind. Uh, what kind of redundancy are you trying to exploit in the frame and how do you sort of go about systematically designing a compression algorithm to take advantage of those properties now if you context switch to dnns uh, there are a variety of compression techniques ranging from vanilla huffman encoding style compression to things that are more model uh, specific like quantization and more recently things like sparsity which introduce zeros which you can eventually you know compress or used to save in terms of compute as well. You can skip the zero compute and so on. Um, so in the DNN realm, it looks like we don't have that strong a theory on how these techniques actually work, like quantization, compression, and so on. And they can have a material impact on the model quality. So how do you think about these techniques that trade off accuracy against performance uh, in the context of DNNs? Is there any uh, uh, differences from the video compression space? And what are the... Uh, principles behind uh, how do you exploit these techniques in the DNN context? Uh, any pitfalls, any things that people need to watch out for as they employ these techniques in the DNN space? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. It's a very challenging question, actually, because yes, you're right. In the video compression space, it's much more grounded in theory, a lot of signal processing theory. I think the only thing that's kind of a little bit um, unsettled and harder to uh, get one's hand around is more, you know, you know, when you look at the quality of the output, there's some, you know, human visual perception aspect of it that's a little bit harder to manage. But in general, in terms of why we're doing each step, there's a principle behind it. Um, well, yeah, what I think there's like a lot of challenges in deep learning space that I think people are still trying to figure out, like, you know, why do I think there's a lot of work on like the science of deep learning? Why does it even work? And so on. And so if it's hard to understand why it works or how to kind of debug it, it's harder to get like a very grounded approach in terms of determining the 
implications of how you would change the neural network and how it would impact the accuracy. Like that relationship is much um, weaker or what, much less clear. And it's a, there's a lot of, I guess, unfortunately, a lot of ad hoc and exploration that has to be done in order to kind of, or it's very empirical in terms of figuring it out. There's been two ways that we have approached this. Um, one is more on just understanding from the efficiency perspective, and I, by efficiency, I mean, I mean like energy efficiency and then also speed of how do you, when you apply these techniques that you've outlined, which is, as you mentioned, uh, was it quantization, pruning with sparsity, forget what the, it's just like a compact, ne compact network architecture, that was the other one, like coming up with like smaller models, how do those impact um, energy and latency? I think that's obviously an important thing to look at. Uh, I think a, a very kind of first order way that people have done in the past is primarily evaluate a neural network in terms of the number of operations and the number of weights. And I think that gives you some idea of the complexity. Uh, but I think what's more important is to try and actually look at the metrics that we care about from a hardware perspective, so energy and latency, and use those specific metrics to drive the design, at least, of the neural network itself. Uh, so, for example, um, often one might associate the number of operations with latency, for example, but we know that, you know, as computer architectures and designers, you know that, you know, it also matters the utilization of your hardware. So some types or some shapes of the neural network might not map as well onto the hardware. So even though you have fewer operations, you might not get the speed up that you expect, right? And so really having kind of the hardware in the loop there to really kind of drive the design choices that you might make in terms of, you know, your layer shapes, for example, could really be helpful. Uh, we had done some work on this with respect to this work called NetAdapt that, you know, really put the hardware in the loop in the sense that you would take a neural network, measure its latency and energy, and then use that as an input to iteratively modify the neural network so that you would hit those energy uh, latency targets. Um, another prime example of how people simplify the neural networks is through the process of pruning. And so that's basically you, you know, set some weights to zero, you remove some of the weights. Traditionally, the approach there is you try and remove the weights that have small magnitude, but just because the weight has, you know, like, the number of weights that you move, for example, or the magnitude weights is actually no indication in terms of the impact on energy. In fact, you also should think about things like, you know, the data movement cost, how often that weight is being reused, um, and also, of course, the feature map information. So, um, you know, some work that we did in that space, uh, primarily energy aware pruning, is trying to kind of use um, the energy cost to drive the decision in terms of, for example, which layers to prune. We want to prune the layers that consume the most energy first, and that would allow us to get a better trade-off between, you know, energy efficiency or energy consumption and accuracy. Um, and so that at least gives us a better trade-off, but in terms of getting the insights, it's still very challenging. On the accuracy point of view, I think that's kind of what motivated me to look at more. Uh, I motivated, you know, the collaborations looking more at the robotics and autonomy aspects in the healthcare space, because there's also this aspect of, you know, if you achieve a certain accuracy on, you know, let's say ImageNet and you, Let's say you made this trade-off and you dropped the accuracy by 1%. What does that actually mean? Like, is that meaningful, a 1% drop? Is that big, not big? Um, is that, you know, so we wanted to look a little bit, you know, deeper in the pipeline. So, you know, if I was using this neural network to navigate from point A to point B, then I can actually tell if this trade-off in terms of accuracy is meaningful or not. Or if I'm using this neural network to do some eye tracking for some, you know, neurodegenerative disease tests, then, you know, I actually have a very concrete, um, metric of accuracy because you want to, you know, know how this might impact, you know, 
a certain diagnosis and so on. So I think from an accuracy evaluation point of view, it's good to look at the very specific applications. But I completely agree that it's challenging when it comes to neural networks is not as where we don't have a, a good enough understanding at this moment still of the relationship between complexity and accuracy and then the accuracy for various applications. I was actually curious about the, that accuracy front that you're talking about because you're a little bit transitioning into the, the robotics and the health space there because, you know, in some sense, um, like on ImageNet, you know, you can achieve accuracy of say, you know, 99 or 100%, these days like 100%, right? But then, but then for something like a diagnosis, um, in the kinds of work that you're dealing with, you know, in one sense, the diagnosis is binary, like, uh, yes, you know, we think you have neurodegenerative disease X, or no, we don't. But then maybe behind it, there's some sort of um, threshold that comes to like 96, 97% likely to have it or, or, or something like that. So when in your mind, when you think about the accuracy on these kinds of domains is the accuracy in the, in the binary side, where, you know, obviously a 1% error of yes or no is a really huge sort of uh, actual impact to somebody's life, or perhaps like in the in the in the layer underneath where you might be a little bit off, but then you're you're you still meet the threshold and you still the diagnosis stays the same because it's 96 instead of 95. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think so the, then the question was like how is the neural network being used for this particular application? And let me just use the robotics one as an example first. It's a little bit more fleshed out because there's a lot of complexity in the um, health space, but then the robotics space. I think you know some of the things that you use a neural network for is for perception or for autonomous navigation. So can you understand your environment? If you use a neural network to detect whether or not like how far an object is or if there's an object there, the test there is you know how you know how likely are you going to crash into something basically to get from point A to point B. And uh, I think often a lot of these things are probabilistic, or if you you, you should model, model it in a probabilistic manner, I don't think it's always yes or no completely. And so in fact, actually some of the work, uh, this is in collaboration with Sirtesh Kerman, who's a roboticist here at MIT. So our student, uh, Samia Sudakar, has been looking at um, kind of the implications of uncertainty. So there's actually this whole field of looking at, you know, a neural network will, will give you a result, uh, but the question is like, how confident are you on this result? What is the uncertainty around this result, right? You can't just say, oh, this is like, you know, this object is this far away. Like, are you sure? Are you not sure? We should also know that. So there's a whole field of um, uncertainty. And so I think that part of trying to also measure the uncertainty of the neural network can then help to inform whether like how seriously you should use the output of the neural network in, you know, in the given task that you're doing. On the healthcare side of things, I think that's still obviously these are very, when you go into the healthcare space, um, it's much a much more long-term thing. And that's in collaboration with Thomas Helt, who's another faculty here at MIT. Uh, there we were trying to do some eye tracking work and like, you know, basically depending how, how quickly your eye reacts to certain stimuli, um, you know, there is a correlation between that and certain neurodegenerative diseases like, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and so on. But there, I think the aspect is, of course, you know, depending on the lighting and depending on various other factors, your measurement, like the accuracy of your measurement can vary a bit. The key idea there is that, you know, if you can uh, do this 
rather than doing this in a clinic with a very expensive machine, if you can do it at home with your iPad, you can collect a lot more measurements. So it's not like you know going in to see a specialist once a year to get this measurement, but you can do it more frequently. And though you know maybe the measurement is more noisy at home, but you're collecting it over time, then you can use the longitudinal thing and the multiple collections to kind of address a bit of the noise that you might get in the measurement. But again, it's really like how you use it. So you can imagine, I mean, this of course is still very long-term, but like, you know, how you use it, then that might be saying like, oh, if you if you can measure the uncertainty or if you can collect more data, then you can do a more efficient trade-off between, or you can trade off a little bit more accuracy. Or, but if you, you know, if you use it as like, this is the final decision for everything, then yeah, you might have to really um, increase the complexity and max out the accuracy. So that's kind of like I, like these are stuff like just using it in the field for these particular tasks gives us a little bit more insight in terms of the trade-offs. Yes, yeah, thank you so much. I think that that helps because then now you have a concrete use case and that kind of informs because yeah, how much accuracy is okay to lose? How much uh, parallelism or how much energy do you do you really really have? You know, like what, in some of our previous guests with physically constrained systems, like this is all the energy you have. Boom, period. Like that's it. So that gives you a hard bound. And it sounds like this is by going into a, a, a specific use case that helps give you a hard bound to with and as a lens to look at your trade-off space. Right. And then you could also, but because like you're doing something, if you're looking at what you're doing with the results, it could also, I guess, loosen that bound too, right? So depending on if you're averaging more results or if you have a good measure of uncertainty, I think then then you could. It's not all or nothing. It's not. It's, so it's not ends up being not all like just based on a data set. You like there's a certain task and there's things in a task that you can cut corners on and things you can't. And also, but in a task, you also have many more other options in the space that you can use to address. Um, like the neural network is not the main thing kind of thing, right? Then you have a better idea of how you can trade off other things to address any computational challenges in your neural network. So one of the things that I had in the context of an end-to-end -end system designed for a particular application. So uh, in the context of neural networks, you talked about, you know, uh, you have different, uh, the design space of neural networks is quite large. You can prune them, you can quantize them, you can choose different architectures and so on. But moving to the end-to-end -end stack, it's not just a deep neural network. There are other algorithms that come into the end-to-end -end application. So how do you think, uh, and in many cases, there can be many different algorithms that you can potentially use to solve the same task. So how do you think about, sort of sampling the space. For example, if you look at autonomy, I'm sure there are many, many algorithms yeah. for each individual step in that pipeline. So uh, how do you sort of think about the design process for just pruning this entire space? You have a design space in terms of the hardware parameters. You have a design space in terms of uh, the algorithms that you can potentially use and a design space in terms of how you want to implement this. What are the different technologies that you can use to implement it? So what does the process look like uh, in any yeah. of these cases, right? Like deep neural networks or in particular for end-to-end -end systems designed for specific applications. Right, I guess there, there's end-to-end -end and then there's also full stack. So I'll try and answer uh, both. But I think the the way that generally speaking, I approach you know, looking at building energy efficient systems, I guess the first question is always, you know, what what is the bottleneck or what is what is the main driver of the energy consumption? So is it, you could start always looking from a hardware perspective, and is it like that existing state-of-the-art state-of-the-art solutions for this application? Um, the hardware that they're using, you know, just is not efficient. Like, you know, you can we have all these uh, low-power hardware techniques, so you know, parallels and 
memory, like, you know, efficient memory hierarchies, data flows and stuff. Um, is that something, is that, can that problem be addressed there? Um, but then sometimes, as I mentioned with the video coding space and even some of the work in the robotic space, the problem, you're limited by the algorithms that are running, that are actually doing the, you know, the, the, you know, completing the tasks. And so if you don't have that much parallelism or if your algorithms require you to use like, you know, a huge amount of data and there's gonna be a huge, you're gonna need huge memory. I mean, typical thing in the robotic space is, you know, you're building these maps and these maps can be very huge, right? And so um, is the issue more the representation of that map? So maybe then you should address it from an algorithmic standpoint, right? So can you, uh, we have a student, Peter Lee, who's been looking at, oh, can we, you know, represent a 3D space with these like Gaussian mixture models, which is gonna be much more compact than, you know, doing like kind of a voxel 3D space type of thing. Um, and then of course the challenge there is you want a very compact representation, but you don't want the computing to generate that compact representation to also be very costly. But anyway, so, that's, um, so, so that let, let's just, let, leads me to start thinking about the algorithm side of thing. And of course, then when it comes to algorithms, you're gonna impact the quality of results. So there, that's where it's really important to collaborate with domain experts, right? So that's actually what led to the collaboration with uh, Sirtesh, because kind of like we want to see, I think first of all, we at that time we want to see, you know, is efficient computing really critical in the robotic space? Like what, what is the role it can play there? And then, as you mentioned, there's many solutions. I mean, you know, robotics, robotics is a huge field, right? To get from point, even like the navigation test, there's many different ways of approaching it. Um, so kind of learning from, and working with search, trying to understand, you know, what are, you know, what are the different approaches people take? Um, what are the quality metrics that they care about? So like, you know, like, you know, what are the environments that are, you know, really, um, you know, uh, stress these type of algorithms. So really understand how they define what is a good quality algorithm. Because we don't, you don't want to, you know, design something that's super efficient, but then it doesn't do anything meaningful. Then it's not very useful. So, um, and then you know, given you know this range of algorithms, then we start. This is the, the fun part of learning about the algorithms and thinking through. Oh well, you know, this algorithm might have a lot of memory, or this algorithm might, you know, if we made this small change to the algorithm, it could be much more efficient this way. So it's kind of then, you know, collaborating on trying to learn about the space, but also to educate your collaborators on the space so you can together converge on a set of algorithms that you think are more efficient. Um, and then actually more recently, it's also important to think also at the systems point of view, because there's always this question on, especially in the robotic space, is it really the computer that's building a lot of energy or is it the sensors or is it the actuation itself? Um, and then so understanding kind of the interplay between all those things. So for instance, on the sensing side of things, uh, often, you know, things like sensing depth is actually very expensive because you have to like send a pulse out and wait for it to come back. Um, and so if you can actually pay more compute and do something like a very common thing these days is to take this regular RGB camera, run a neural network on it, and you can predict depth based on that. Like it's kind of like monocular depth estimation. Could you use that to replace these, you know, depth sensors? So obviously that's a lot more compute, but then there's interesting, interesting trade-off between compute and sensing. Sorry, I was just going to make a joke that we should definitely do uh, the less accurate thing for autonomous driving. <laughs> Get rid of LiDAR and just like use these monocular um, uh, depth sensing that you were saying. That that would that will sell cars. <laughs> mm, I'm sure. <laughs> well, actually, so okay, maybe it's a little bit divergent. So speaking of the self-driving cars, we actually so as I mentioned earlier, we were, I was interested in sustainable computing, and we had talked to a lot of great people who were looking at that from the perspective of uh, cloud computing. 
Um, but we were also just want like wondering often, so my big thing is I want to make sure our research is helping things, not making things worse, particularly for sustainability. So one question was for autonomous vehicles, uh, the amount of compute you need to have to do on it, is that also going to have a very large uh, carbon footprint? And so it turns out like, so autonomous vehicles are great, but we have to be mindful of the compute because it turns out if you think about the amount of compute that you have to do for autonomous vehicle, which of course is very far out and the algorithms are still you need to be developed. But if you just think of the number of sensors on a vehicle for it to understand its environment, and if we hypothesize that you'd be running DNNs for each of these sensors, and um, it turns out if you drive, you know, a vehicle one hour a day, and you consider, you know, the, the number of vehicles that we have um, in the world, and if a large portion of them are autonomous vehicles, the amount of compute that would be necessary would actually be comparable or more than what you have in data centers today. Right, just the, the scaling factor. And so the, the main takeaway from that is it's great to enable you know, autonomous vehicles. I think it's, you know, it's very valid. There's a lot of societal benefits for that, but it's really important to think about the compute too, because even though it doesn't seem like a lot, if you look at one vehicle, as you scale it up, it can be quite substantial. Interesting project that we were looking at. So we're trying to look at to see, because we were really curious like to see if our small scale stuff also applies at large scale. So what I'm hearing you say is we should get rid of the pulses so that we can make it cheaper. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, no, that that is that is really interesting. Yeah, because in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the reverse of the shift to data center, right? Because in the in the old days, you know, each individual person had to decide whether or not the battery on a particular laptop was like good enough for them. And like each individual person doesn't have enough scale to really necessarily like move the industry. But suddenly we start packing thousands and thousands and thousands of them into these buildings. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we have to think about the individual, like the small thing because we're timesing it by a million. Right. And so now it's kind of like, now, you know, with the cars, we're just like, oh, it's just a car. There's a couple of little chips in there, whatever. But then, what you're saying is like, yeah, there's a, there's billions of cars out. Well, actually, how many cars are in the world? Yeah, so there's 1.2 billion vehicles out there. So, um, you know, we were just trying to model some scenarios. And one particular scenario, if you assume that, you know, 1 billion of them, let's say, would be autonomous, then, yeah, you would hit this issue where you're comparable to uh, the power of data centers. I think if it was something like if the compute per vehicle is around, you know, 800 watts, there's not too much if you think about like the power that we take to run uh, deep learning, um, specifically if you had so many you know sensors around your vehicle, you just see like 360 right around your vehicle and stuff. So it's quite it can be quite a significant. And, the, and I think the interesting thing about this was also um, you know on the on the data center side, it's kind of you can swap your. I mean, I'm not a data center expert, so you guys can cover it. But like you know, you can like up, upgrade your hardware um, and so on. Um, but I think also the the challenge there is that you also have like a wide range of workloads on a self-driving car. I think you can be much more specialized in terms of like the tasks that you're trying to do because you know it's going to be on a vehicle. But at the same time, you know, if I understand correctly, in the data center, people change out their compute every like three, four years or something. But on a on a vehicle, you know, usually these vehicles are supposed to last like ten years or more, so it's not as easily um, upgradable. And so there's a question of you know how should you design the hardware for a self-driving vehicle because it needs to last longer. And you do have, maybe it is a good match for specialized computing because you do have a narrower set of tasks. But at the same time, if you update the algorithm, you want to be able to push that to the vehicle as well. So um, it's an interesting challenge to think about. 
really fascinating set of considerations uh definitely unique to the self driving car space and uh, i think it's interesting to see how this will evolve uh, i did want to touch upon one of the themes that you brought up uh which is you know you've worked on wide range of domains and gone into like substantial amounts of depth to figure out like how can you find that next uh domain of efficiency and how do you relate them back into the hardware context uh i wanted to ask you like uh, how do you think about problems that sort of span multiple boundaries maybe things that are outside your immediate field of expertise and how do you sort of go about learning and collaborating sort of effectively with multiple domain experts uh, in your uh, in in the many projects and the many uh uh ideas that you've developed over the years yeah so i guess it's like a question more about the process i think um so certainly it's it's fun to you know do a lot of reading learn on learn about the topics but i actually get the most enjoyment like interacting with people um so i like to go learn about a given topic from a particular person right so i think in all of these cases both with Joel so with Joel it was more like okay I want to focus on efficiency I know that he's done a lot of you know coming from the computer architecture community he's you know knows a lot about flexibility and programmability so kind of bringing our expertise together to solve this problem is really fun because I get to learn more about you know the architecture space and I hope he gets to learn more about efficiency uh, you know in the robotics space same thing with Sertesh and the healthcare space same with uh, Thomas so I think the the high level thing is always you know what is important problem to solve and then at least for me it's like what is my from my skill set will that make an impact there my skill set is first from the lens of energy efficiency and then afterwards going a little bit deeper and trying to think at what level of the stack we should be solving at and then if i'm not familiar with that level find people that I would like to work with and are you know excited to learn from about that level and work together. And we're we're also equally excited about we're uh, you know working together to solve that kind of a problem. Um so I think the you know the high level bit is trying to identify the right problem and then finding the right people to work with on it. Um and then of course the the high level the challenges are always um trying to find a way to efficiently or not effectively communicate across the different domain boundaries. Because so as we know, they're like in each domain, uh, people have their own little language about their topic, and sometimes you know it's expected at the beginning it's going to be kind of a a bumpy road to ramp up. But I think if both parties are equally engaged in trying to communicate to the other person so that they can understand and trying to um, you know distill down the concepts, then I think it's in. you know an effective way to learn but that is the challenge at the beginning too just trying to figure out that you speak the same language same terminology to find it all very clearly yeah that's definitely a tough one i experience that a lot in any sort of cross layer collaboration and i just wanted to point out that throughout this this discussion that we've been having it feels to me like it's just jumped out that how many other people's names you've mentioned and so you know it seems pretty clear to me that you would be like a a a generous and enthusiastic collaborator and that's probably why you have had such fruitful collaborative um work in the past because you're just like oh we work with this person and this person it i don't know at some point it pierced my thick skull just like wow she's mentioned a lot of people um and so so yeah kudos to to you because that's not easy thank you yeah i think this is what i also tell my students it's good to be generous with credit and also to value your collaborators i think a lot of these problems and like challenges 
it's like again like i said for me it's really much the the fun part is with working out with all these people I, I i find actually much more satisfaction saying we solved this problem together than i solved it myself because I, I just feel I'm like that's the same thing i encourage my group people to collaborate because i think it's a lot more fun like if you bring a lot of different perspectives different ideas and you get both get much more out of it i personally think so um but yeah thank you for noticing <laughs> That's awesome. And that's a great meta thing to teach to your students too, I think, in, in my humble opinion. So kudos again. Maybe this is a good time to sort of wind the clocks back a little bit. Uh, could you tell our listeners how you got interested you know, in energy efficient computing? Uh, how did you get to MIT? What was your journey like? Uh, and any highlights from, those, from the journey? Right, sure. Yeah. So I guess, so I did also do my PhD at MIT. So maybe I can start, like when you say MIT, you mean both times. <laughs> Unfortunately, I spent a lot of time here, or fortunately. Uh, what happened was after, in graduate school, I mean, undergrads, I was not actually, to be honest, thinking about doing grad school at all. But um, at the University of Toronto, where I did my undergraduate studies, you could do a 16-month internship um, to kind of figure out what you want to do after you graduated. So I ended up working at a startup called Snowbush, which was actually um, started by two professors at the University of Toronto, so David Johns and um, Ken Martin. Um, and they were looking at, you know, mixed signal analog design. I had no idea what that was, but I just thought, you know, it's, it's just something uh, cool to do. Um, and as you can expect, a startup by professors is going to be, the employees are all their former grad students. So then I kind of got a, what a feel was like for working with fellow uh, graduate students. And I mean, I think also what was very clear to me at the time was if you wanted a design role, at least at that company, you would need some kind of higher level degree, some grad school uh, versus like, as an undergrad, though I was involved with many tape books, but primarily the focus was doing the physical design and layout. So I decided to apply for grad school when I, I guess it was a senior, my fourth year. And I was like, also like, oh, I might as well apply for MIT in the States as well. Um, so then that's how I kind of ended up at MIT. And then at MIT for my PhD, I worked with Anantha Chandra Kassan, who's kind of like the world expert on low power circuit design. Um, and so he had, you know, pioneer a lot of these approaches of, you know, aggressively scaling down the supply voltage and then developing circuits that can work at very low voltages, like sub thresholds, like down to like 0.2 volts and stuff at very low power. But then one strategy to mitigate, like if you, as I mentioned before, I think if you go very low voltage, you're also super slow. So that's great for applications like the medical space, but not so much for, you know, applications where you need to have some reasonable amount of throughput. I was also personally, okay, so I love television, so I was also very into video. So I was like, oh, it would be like, that would be one topic I would wanna work on video. And so he was like, great. So try and think about how you would apply these low power strategies to uh, video processing. And so I was you know, lucky enough to be able to work on that topic. Of course, you know, as a faculty, he found some funding for that, which is great. Um, and so uh, working with another graduate st student, Daniel Finkelstein, we you know designed this H.264, which was kind of a state-of-the-art at that time, video compression chip that operated, I think it was like 0.7 volts, was very low power. So people were you know very impressed by that. And like, you know, there I think often a question that comes up in the computer architecture community is, is, is there value in taping out a chip? And there it de definitely was because we taped out a chip, we reported it, and people were like, oh, I don't believe that it's actually that low power. So we actually brought our chip to, I think the conference is in Japan, like a demo for them to see that it is this low power. So it's like, it gives like, it's not there's like, we didn't model it or something incorrectly. Like it actually, like we can design it. It's true. It's like a proof of concept. And it was like um, very exciting. Uh, but in that process, I realized that 
you know, there were a lot of things that were still kind of limiting what we could do, especially if you start want to, starting wanting to like improve the albums for better compression. So then even as a grad student, I started to collaborate with Texas Instruments on looking at new algorithms for video compression, but with the lens of making it low power. I was also very fortunate at that time that the video standards were just like starting to kick up. So these video standards happen every decade or so. So like you really have to be lucky to, because I mean, if it just finished, there's no new, nothing new to do, but they, they were just kicking off. So by the time I graduated 2010, and Ananta was actually very, I should say, was very supportive of sending me to these like kind of preliminary standards meeting when I was a grad student, which was great. So even though there's no publication out of it, I learned a lot in terms of what happens in these standards committees. And so when I graduated, I joined TI. And then so with Madhukar Budagavi and Minhua Zhou, we worked on like, you know, algorithms for the new standard. Everything was, so was great. We designed HEVC and that's very rewarding because it's used in like a lot of these Apple products and a lot of devices around the world. You know, after the standard ended, so it takes, takes three years to do a standard, it was like, oh, uh, you know, what to do next? You can either work on the next standard, you can switch products, um, or you can consider going back to be faculty at MIT. And I think I really enjoyed working with the under, or for the grad students who interned at TI over the summer, and Ananta was really encouraging me to consider faculty. And I was also getting really interested in computer vision in the, in the sense of like, it's one thing to be very energy efficient when you compress the pixels, but it could also be very interesting to see how energy efficient it is to understand the pixels, because we know there's a wide range of applications where you don't need to look at the video. So then I decided to come back to MIT, and then um, that's where like the focus was then on you know efficient video processing, and it became computer vision. And then it was, of course, say the art there was deep learning. I had to, it was just, uh, starting off at that time. And I would say I should also give credit to Vinay Sharma, who was at Texas Instrument, who, you know, he and I, he was a computer vision guy. We'd always have these like nice discussions about, you know, what's going on in the computer vision space. Like, oh, this deep learning thing seems to be really taking off. This is like 2011. So then when I came back to MIT, it's like, oh, we should work on this uh, space. And so that's kind of how the deep learning stuff started. That's a really cool story. And it reminds me that one of the things that we had wanted to ask you about today, which we haven't gotten to yet, was how your work from from uh, your time during at MIT for the first time around NTI led to an Emmy. I don't know how many people in our field have an Emmy. Tell us about that. Like specifically, what was the Emmy for? And um, and did you have to get all dressed up and go to a, uh, a dinner or whatever like on TV? <laughs> all right. So first of all, let me. I mean, Emmy sounds good. I mean, I clarify a couple of things. So the Emmy is first of all for. Um, it's for the entire standards committee that developed HEVC, right? So it's not a personal, it's for like our whole committee together. So that was led by uh, Gary Sullivan and Jens Ohm. Yeah, it was just to rec in recognition of this new technology that we've built. And now that obviously they can do it to use it to distribute a lot of video. I mean, like I mentioned, I love television. So it was like really great to be like, oh, I never thought, you know, I like consuming television, not producing. So I was like, oh, this Emmy would never happen to us. But then, oh, actually with an engineering approach, you can actually get these Emmys. Yeah, I will also say it was an engineering Emmy, not a creative arts Emmy, so they're different ceremonies. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was super exciting to go. So yeah, it was like a whole dinner thing. And um, I forget who the celebrity was. They had a celebrity like who was the host. Um, and it was just actually really rewarding to see all, you know, former collaborators and colleagues because the Emmy thing was 2017. I had left TI at 2013. So it had been like a four year gap since I saw a lot of these people. So it was just a really nice reunion as well. 
And in general, it's just like very nice recognition. Like actually developing standards in terms of time and effort is actually can be really tiring. They meet, we meet like quarterly, but then we have these really intense 10 day meetings where most often when you're, the meeting's over, most restaurants are also closed as well. Like it just goes, runs really late, it's really intense. Um, and then even between the meetings, it's very intense. So it's just nice to get that kind of a recognition after all of that hard work. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was certainly unexpected, but then when I think back, like, oh, like, you know, I've always liked television, so this is a good alignment with my other interests. That's amazing. And would you say, I mean, cause like, so yeah, like you say right now, like we can, like we as a society consume a lot of video. Yeah. Um, and, and is, was this technology like so, seminal and sort of being able to pack a lot of video into small pieces so that we can consume it at the rate that we do now? Like would, like what specifically, I mean, I, there's yeah. there's a lot of standards out there, but not all of them win Emmys. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about what it was exactly. Right, and I think, you know, credit to like the whole standards community and the leadership of the chairs to getting this done. Cause you're right, there's a lot of standards and not that many take off in terms of popularity. So I think the first key thing, obviously for a video coding standard is to improve compression. So every standard, which happens, as I mentioned, every decade or so, the goal is to improve the compression by 2x, meaning same quality of video and then 2x smaller size. Um, and this is, of course, important because we're all using a lot more video these days. Um, and even though, you know, bandwidth and memory increases, but like the increase in usage is uh, much higher than that. So um, that's really critical. But then the second thing, and that was a specific focus in this new standard or HEVC at the time, there's another one that's coming out. But HEVC was, um, if you think 264, which is the prior standard that that was developed in 2003, uh, how we use video in 2003 is very different from 2013, right? So these days, a lot of the video is consumed on battery operated devices, like whether it be your phone, your laptop, um, both consumed and I would say created, right? Because you're taking videos. And so there, I think the key thing to make HEVC also be an effective standard is we considered energy consumption. So basically often there were a lot of things where we had to evaluate the trade-off, like, oh, your new idea can give X amount of compression, but we had to evaluate the complexity of it. Does it also consume however much energy? And so is that trade-off really worth it? Or is there a better way to achieve the same you know, coding efficiency in a different way that's le much less um, energy heavy or complexity heavy. So by bringing those two things in, I think the standard that we came up with was, you know, twice um, as efficient in terms of compression, but also um, the overhead of getting that compression was very low compared to uh, 264. So I think those are the kind of things like really understand, first making sure that your standard does compress well over a wide, it's crazy, over a wide range of content. So they really have to test or wide range of content, wide range of scenarios, because how we do video compression right now for video conferencing, conferencing low latency is very different from how you would compress like cinematic content, right? Um, where you have a lot of compute time, but quality is really key. Um, so like you have to consider all scenarios and then also these days compute as well. So I think being able to balance all of that is what led to a, a key component leading to the success of the standard. Now that's a fascinating story and also uh, sort of talks about the uh, the changing times and how you know different standards sort of evolve with the changing times and the huge amount of work effort that goes into enabling these technologies for the larger mass as well. Any words of wisdom to our listeners uh, who will be listening to this podcast 
based on your experience working on a wide range of domains, collaborating with a wide range of people, uh, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I think there's, I was trying to think about this before. I think there's two key things. So one is if I look at my own trajectory, and this is what I actually tell my own students, I think it's really important to work with people that you like to work with, who you surround yourself is, is like so key. It actually sometimes doesn't even really matter so much the problem, although the problem is should be both, like you should both be motivated or all be motivated to solve it. I think I'm so lucky and happy with all the people that I collaborate with. That's, you know, I really enjoy the teamwork and learning from um, everyone. So I think that's really, the you know, very important. And I think the other thing, and this actually comes from like, so um, I recently ran this workshop with uh, another faculty member who teaches like a leadership workshop here at MIT. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting things. I think this happens in industry. When you uh, become a manager leader, you get sent to these leadership workshops and they teach you things like, you know, how to give feedback, how to leave a team, how to manage conflicts. But I think actually a lot of those skill sets are really important, even if you're quote unquote, not a leader, like even as like a graduate student, like you don't know if you'll be a leader in future, but even as a graduate student or, or any student actually, knowing how to give and receive feedback in particular, I think receive feedback is really um, important. So we ran a workshop on that recently, but there's actually a lot of, um, I okay, so a couple of th things, like this is like you, you often feel like these interpersonal non-technical challenges are like you're the only one encountering them but it turns out there's a lot of literature and research on this. So even stuff like learning and like to give and receive feedback, there's a ton of literature on that. And uh, so we ran a workshop on that, but as it turns out, it was actually very timely because for many folks, they're getting their reviews back right now from, uh, and so on other conferences. And so being able to um, kind of look at that feedback, and of course there's gonna be good reviews and bad reviews, but being able to look at it and try and distill the useful feedback from that um, and not take it so personally, it's hard to not take it personally because you work really hard on it, but nonetheless, being trying to look at it more of like, this is a growth opportunity, uh, you know, actually getting feedback in some ways is actually a privilege, not really, like nobody has to give you feedback. You're kind of, you know, being given feedback isn't someone put the time in to give you that feedback and just try and make the best use of it. I think having that lens for, um, the kind of the grad school journey or any journey is actually quite useful and more broadly even if you don't intend to be a leader although you you might be a leader you might but, but nonetheless like building those type of skills of being able to manage feedback manage, managing con conflict just these non-technical skills are really important um, at every point of your journey these are not things that you would deal with after you graduate like you can use them every day you know so i think that that would be the other thing to you know we're all excited about technical uh skills and abilities but non-technical is also really critical i 100 percent agree with that and i think one of the things that i've come to realize toward at, at, you know at this time in my career which is currently paused as some people may know um is that you get to a point it's like you know what the limiting factor i mean of course people can reach a, a limit in terms of your technical capacity, right? It's just like, I just don't understand this stuff, right? Like I will never be a string theory physicist or whatever, because like that's just not how my brain works. So that at a certain point, you might be able to, you might cap out on some sort of technical aspect. What I didn't really realize is that you may be able to cap out on your interpersonal aspect. Like you might not just be able to communicate your ideas. You might just not be able to work with enough people. You might just not be able to cope with the stress of having to deal with like, you know, I don't know, uh, $500 million budget or something like that. And so 
to get these, and I think that is something that a lot of young folks don't necessarily realize. It's just like, if I just get, you know, if I just, you know, break through this technology, if I just do this or, or that or the other, then that'll, that'll be set for life. And that's not the case. So the fact that you're teaching this at such a young age and even like running workshops for your students, like that's going to set them up for a longer term success. Cause I mean, I mean, coming out of MIT, you're going to have the technical chops, but the, to be able to like handle all the other stuff is a really, really meaningful lesson to teach to your students. Thanks. So, and I also think like these things actually inhibit your ability to develop your technical chops because you spend a lot of your time like if i reflect back you know like 90 percent of the things that keep you up at night are typically these non-technical interpersonal issues as opposed to the technical issues so if you could clear these things out or learn how to manage these things then you could focus more of your energy on the technical aspects of things and then yeah the other like i really want to emphasize is just like in you know in computer architecture with tons of papers on different like you hit a technical challenge you can look at papers and read papers and you're not the first one to hit that challenge and these interpersonal things a huge body of research you're also not the first one to have an issue with your advisor you're not the first one to feel upset about a negative review there's tons of people who have gone through this and there's different ways of dealing with it. So it's good to use that as a resource. Like we're, you know, here, if we're all researchers, just research this part as, as well. Like it's all there. Um, I just didn't realize it until, you know, later in life and I wish I had known earlier in life. So that's why I kind of feel like for these uh, younger folks, we should all do it. <laughs> yeah, this actually evokes a little bit, you know, our previous guest, Jim Keller, who obviously has a lot of technical chops as well as managerial chops. Talk to us a bit about how he reads a lot of books about management. That's how he like builds these teams that are successful because he's read a lot of books specifically about that topic. And um, and so it's interesting that, that that you're doing something similar, but sort of pushing it down at the at the university level already. So that's pretty awesome. I mean, I wish they would do in the high school level. I think every you have to do everyone has to deal with people and conflict and feedback. So you don't have to be just a manager or a professor or whatever. You know, it's been wonderful, wonderful chatting with you. We've learned a lot. You've had a lot of great things to share with us about all sorts of topics, um, ranging from the technical and the non-technical. So thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for doing this. I think this is a lot of fun. And thanks for just your leadership in all this podcast area and broadening the reach of our this community to the rest of the world. Yeah, uh, echoing Lisa's sentiment here, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today. And to our listeners, uh, thank you for being with us on the Computer Architecture Podcast. Till next time, it's goodbye from us.